0: Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Technology often seems to be the focus when conversation turns to solutions to address climate change. Clean energy, carbon capture, and even geoengineering dominate headlines and attract the attention of climate-focused investors. When it comes to protecting coastal communities, infrastructure projects like seawalls and raised roads likewise grab attention. Particularly after extreme weather events. Yet, nature itself is likely to play just as important a role as engineered solutions in our efforts to slow climate change and navigate its worst impacts. Today, scientists and some policymakers are aggressively exploring the potential of nature based solutions to address the climate challenge. On today's podcast, we'll take a look at the promise, challenges, and potential hazards of nature-based climate solutions and explore what it will take to implement these solutions rapidly on a global scale. My guest is Natalie Seddon, a professor of biodiversity at the University of Oxford and founding director of the Nature-Based Solutions Initiative. She'll explain what qualifies as a nature-based solution and look at the community and environmental impacts that need to be taken into account when putting nature-based solutions into action. She'll also discuss the challenge of attracting financing for nature-based projects. Natalie, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much. It's great to be here.
0: You're the founder of the Nature-Based Solutions Initiative. What does the initiative do?
1: Well, broadly speaking, the Nature-Based Solutions Initiative is a program based at the University of Oxford that delivers interdisciplinary research, education, and policy advice, all aimed at enhancing awareness and understanding of ways of working with nature in a rapidly changing world. Uh, A bit more specifically, what we do is we do a lot of work on bringing together the evidence base from both science and practice on the effectiveness, the socioeconomic, the ecological effectiveness and the climate effectiveness of nature-based solutions. So we do a mixture of systematic reviews to try and bring together existing evidence. We then do pure research to try and plug the evidence gaps, and then we bring together evidence to formulate guidelines on best practice, and on that basis, provide evidence to um, decision-makers in government and business.
0: Broadly speaking, what defines a nature-based climate solution?
1: Very broadly speaking, uh, nature-based solutions are ways of working with nature to address societal goals. Nature-based climate solutions are sort of a subset of nature-based solutions, specifically focusing on delivering climate change mitigation and adaptation, adaptation benefits for people. Um, In terms of defining them, uh, they are place-based partnerships between people and nature. They are biodiversity-based and they are people-led. And they involve a combination of protecting natural and semi-natural ecosystems, restoring those ecosystems, sustainably managing our working lands, and creating new ecosystems, for example, in and around our cities.
0: So so these kind of contrast with what we think of frequently as engineered solutions, which is everything from direct air capture to seawalls, kind of the more technology or infrastructure based projects, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They contrast with them, but um, as we might discuss later, they work well with them. They're not an alternative to technology in many contexts. They are effective working as hybrid solutions with with technological solutions.
0: Now, most countries include nature-based solutions as part of their plan to achieve climate targets under the Paris Agreement. How big of a role do countries expect nature-based solutions to play in meeting their carbon reduction targets?
1: Well, uh... It's very good to think about this from a country's perspective, but actually it's very difficult to determine and uh, what sort of mitigation and adaptation potential investing nature can deliver at a country level. Most of the analyses to date have tended to focus at the, the global level uh, and there's lots of different teams, uh, interdisciplinary interdisciplinary research teams working all over the world who are really focused on, on this question. And if we think, um, first of all, about the mitigation side, um, and then we'll move on to the adaptation side, although, as I will emphasize, it's really important to think about these things together when we think about nature-based solutions. The idea is that they deliver multiple benefits, not just one thing over the other. But when it comes to mitigation, if we were to scale up nature-based solutions, globally to the maximum extent possible. So if we were to uh, protect our intact lands, our forests, our wetlands, our peatlands, our grasslands and so forth, if we were to do that, and if we were to properly sustainably manage our working lands, our croplands, our grazing lands, and if we are to restore native vegetation cover to the maximum extent possible, taking into account limits on where these activities can take place, taking into account social and biodiversity safeguards and all sorts of other factors like the price of carbon and uh, uh, demand and supply for different sorts of food um, production systems. If we take all of that into account, what we can expect is 10 gigatons less of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere per year for for up to um, the next 100 years. So 10 gigatons of carbon dioxide a year could be um, removed from the atmosphere by scaling up nature-based solutions. Now, this is a fairly big figure, and it's uh, around 27% of carbon dioxide emissions from human activity that would be absorbed. Um, But I think uh, it's very important to place that figure In the broader context of what can be achieved uh, with fossil fuel reductions or emissions from fossil reductions from emissions from fossil fuels so recently we were um, i was involved in a in a a study that was looking at this so trying to reframe that 10 gigatons with respect to the paris agreement goal and what we find is that if we are aiming for, well, not if we're aiming for, but if we achieve peak warming of two degrees Celsius, post-industrial times by about 2075, so towards the end of the century, nature-based solutions would knock about a third of a degree off peak warming. Mm-hmm. So so it's, uh, it, it is an important amount, but it's really important to understand that we cannot achieve that uh, Third of a degree of peak warming unless we also uh, drastically um, and effectively reduce our emissions from fossil, you know, basically keep fossil fuels in the ground. You know, we won't, unless we have decarbonisation across all sectors of the economy, we won't achieve that because the warming that will result uh, will undermine the biosphere, will degrade and destroy the biosphere and cause it to be ultimately a net source of greenhouse gases rather than a net sink, which it currently is. So that's the mitigation side <laughs> and it's sort of uh, complex, but nonetheless possible to put a figure on the mitigation potential. There's, there's, there's lots of work on this. It's a very, very important question. When it comes to adaptation, um, it's, it's, there aren't those um, specific metrics. We can't look at carbon. But we do know, and there is a growing evidence base around the fact that working with nature is really important for adaptation, incredibly important for adaptation. And and working with nature can deliver uh, adaptation benefits along three different pathways. Uh, The first is it can reduce our exposure to extreme weather events, for example, to flooding and to droughts it can reduce our sensitivity to those events, and it can also um, increase our adaptive capacity and our social capital, in other words, our ability to deal with uh, future change. And there's lots of evidence from all over the world that, that working with nature can really help us deal with the climate change that's already locked into the system and is a really important thing not to overlook when thinking about nature-based solutions, those adaptation or those resilience benefits that nature can provide.
0: But that's so important what you point out, that nature-based solutions both have a a, a mitigation uh, potential as well as an adaptation potential, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I wanted to uh, draw attention uh, to a paper that you and uh, a number of co-authors published at the end of December, this past December. And the title of the paper is Getting the Message Right on Nature-Based Solutions to Climate Change. And uh, you know, you've know, you been outspoken in your criticism or concern around the simplistic way that nature-based solutions are commonly presented to the public. And, and in this paper, uh, there's some warning about the danger of this. Can you, can you talk more about what that concern is about?
1: So there are two key elements to that concern. Uh, one is around this idea that tree planting is some sort of silver bullet climate solution, that if we just plant enough trees on this planet, we will be able to make up, we'll be able to stabilize our climate system, we'll be able to offset all the damage that we've done to both the biosphere and the climate.
0: Like with the Trillion Trees Initiative that we've heard about, right?
1: Exactly, exactly. And, And the problem with that is, that sort of silver bullet idea, it sort of then de uh, action and financing and implementation of all the other all the other approaches that we also need in order to in order to keep us safe you know and it's um it's it's really really problematic and it's being nature-based solutions are currently being misused for greenwashing so this idea that you know promoting nature-based solutions as carbon offsets while continuing business as usual and fossil fuel use is really emphatically not uh, a solution to climate change. In fact, it can encourage continued, or even increase, fossil fuel consumption, leading to more emissions overall. And it can also distract from or delay the need for systemic change and a transition to what is increasingly being called a, a sort of nature positive economy. So it's sort of distracting and, disla- and delaying the decarbonisation. Um, and, and you give is often giving people a sort of false sense of security around their own individual consumption, um, and so forth. So that, that, that's a really, really, uh, re- really problematic. Um you know, nature-based solutions can make a vitally important contribution to reaching net zero emissions. But it, as I said before, but only if it's combined with very ambitious cuts in greenhouse gas emissions and otherwise by burning less fossil fuel. Um, so, so it's really, really important to, to, to get that message out there. Um, and the problem is, is that these poor quality nature-based offsets, for example, investment in single species, commercial forestry plantations, which might be useful in terms of providing the wood we need, and that's, you know, wood production is important, but um, using that or deploying that as a climate solution is problematic because it actually might have negative effects on climate change mitigation, as well as adverse effects on biodiversity and critically also the people um, who depend upon the ecosystems that often get damaged as commercial forestry operations are scaled up.
0: You know, earlier you briefly noted that nature-based solutions have to work in conjunction with technology and engineered solutions. It's an all-in kind of solution here we're talking about. But one of the challenges going to be getting nature-based solutions scaled up. And to date, as you've pointed out, investment in nature-based solutions has not been adequate at all. And the funding deficit appears to be due at least in part to the difficulty in gathering data that allows the economic value of nature-based solutions to be quantified. And I guess that's why we've seen plantations, uh, because they're very discreet, they're easy to understand, but many of these solutions are not. So can you tell us about this missing data problem and why it creates barriers to investment and action you know, on, on nature-based solutions?
1: Well, I think there's a there's growing understanding in governments of the world and in business as well that investing in nature is incredibly important because, you know, it reduces all sorts of risks and increases it from the, from the business side. It reduces risks, increases opportunities, that the continued degradation of the natural world is, you know, a major uh, cause of, you know, it's basically undermining the development gains of the of the 20th century and is increasing, you know, poverty and equality around the world. And it's an exciting time to be working in this space, because more and more people, more and more decision makers are realising that. Um, But the problem is, is that often the benefits from nature is seen as a little bit more long term benefits. So there's a real question of scale, time scale, and also spatial scale here. But actually, what we're finding is that uh, actually, investment in um, ecosystem restoration and landscape restoration can also generate more short-term economic benefits as well so it can stimulate job livelihoods obviously job creation and so on is all stimulated by you know in those sorts of investments and that's really important you know realizing that is or sharing uh, knowledge about that and making evidence on that more broadly available is very important but i think um It's also becoming more understood that there are those, you know, vitally important cost effective approaches to dealing with flooding and droughts and coastal erosions that nature provides. You know, there's evidence that suggests that the cost effectiveness of coastal restoration projects is between three to five times greater than, than gray engineering or technological projects, mm. um, but, but and and for example, there's growing evidence every year in the, in the USA that um, salt marshes um, in the northern USA protect around 23 billion US dollars worth of property during the hurricane season and that the broader the area of the salt marsh, the greater the benefits, the greater the economic returns on investing in that salt marsh there are. Um, but there's a great need to you know bring that information uh, to the right decision makers to engage more with the insurance industry to highlight the the cost effectiveness of working with nature to address these really um, increasingly um, you know, hazardous problems that we face under climate change, and similarly, there are ways of you know working in our landscapes that can reduce the intensity and frequency of forest fires. You know there are there are ways of bringing trees into agricultural landscapes that will really mitigate the impacts of 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 droughts. I'm thinking in sub-Saharan Africa, the practice like agroforestry is incredibly important. So in lots of parts of the world, sort of the evidence that working with nature is an economically important thing to do is sort of building every year. As we face more and more intense um, impacts from climate change and often local communities all over the world, you know, they've actually been working with nature in these ways for a long time, especially in those parts of the world that are used to more climatic variability. And it's just about how we can sort of share that understanding of ways of working with nature more broadly and um, enable sustainable flows of finance to those sorts of interventions so that they can scale out and scale up across the world.
0: Well, is it, is it particularly difficult? I, I, it would seem to me that it is to quantify the benefits. I mean, you, you take an engineered yeah. solution, yeah. you know what it costs, you know how much carbon dioxide might be removed from the atmosphere. Uh, but it seems like um, nature-based solutions yeah. are, are more complex.
1: They are more complex, but actually a lot of the science is in place. And it's a question of bringing these different data sets together. You know, we have really uh, very quite sophisticated technology now for quantifying biodiversity example, from the ecosystem, because what's become very, very clear is that, you know, these metrics um, need to be very holistic, they need to include carbon and biodiversity and other societal benefits, other ecosystem services. If you just focus on the carbon benefits of a particular intervention, be it a nature based intervention or a technological intervention that will inevitably, probably, well, almost inevitably have negative outcomes for biodiversity. For example, a plant, a tree plantation, generally depends on the baseline, of course, but generally will have poor outcomes for biodiversity if not properly implemented. Um, but at least in the short term, might bring benefits in terms of carbon sequestration and storage. Um, so there are, is a really urgent need to bring together the science on biodiversity with the science around how you quantify carbon sequestration and storage and develop much more um, holistic Metrics uh, for for um, uh, you know offsetting or insetting schemes within um, company supply chains and so forth. For example, you know we now know, you know we've got sophisticated methods for measuring the diversity of life in our soils. You know and and uh, as well as you know among different sorts of trophic levels within the ecosystem and we can bring all that data together so there's a real need to sort of for for biodiversity scientists to start collaborating in a more interdisciplinary way so some of that understanding of what makes for a healthy ecosystem can better inform you know initiatives which have been established to help companies meet their um, environmental goals.
0: There are a couple points here I want to dive a little bit more deeply into that that you've just mentioned. One is, you know, your work emphasizes that nature-based solutions must take into account the needs of local communities. You just talked about that. Further, if, if, if not, if these communities' needs are not taken into account, the real risk here, or one of the major risks, is that climate benefits themselves are likely to be temporary, in addition to the fact that the communities can be harmed. Can you tell us a little bit more why why that is?
1: So, yeah, I mean, just to, to reiterate the point: to deliver effective, legitimate, resilient, nature-based you know solutions or outcomes of interventions, you know, all relevant stakeholders at the local level need to be need to be fully fully engaged with, especially indigenous people and in local communities. And it's not so much a simple engagement that that term is. Is a, is a confusing one. They need to be involved in a very fundamental way in all decisions about what happens to their ecosystem. This so, shouldn't
0: be imposed from... Yeah, exactly. Because uh, it focuses, them, right?
1: Exactly. They need to be engaged in the d- implementation, the design, the management, the monitoring, the evaluation of the projects. And all those interventions should sort of, you know, foster ownership, empowerment, and well-being of the people. And if, it, if that doesn't happen, then then those nature-based solutions are not going to be sustainable. And there are several really good reasons for that. Um, one, a quite an, an obvious one, I suppose, is that you know, often they are the stewards of the land and the natural resources, and they often have really comprehensive, rich knowledge of those ecosystems and their management. You know, they've been adaptively learning about how to work with their ecosystems often for a very long time, learning lessons from past mistakes and so on, and have very specific insight onto their, you know, the local context and what and what works there. Because nature-based solutions are very, very place-based. What works in one valley might not work in an adjacent valley, or even different farms might have different sort of geomorphologies and different habitats and things that, that those local people will know best how to manage. So so if we ignore that and sort of, you know, then, then we risk actually having poor interventions you know so we have to take that knowledge onto account Um, you know I think uh, local information about the diverse values of nature and how these differ across different sectors of society is very important to um, ensure that the benefits from the intervention are equitably distributed because sometimes you can have an intervention and maybe some parts of the society benefit from it but maybe the poor and more marginalized parts of the society might be harmed by it. And the problem is, is all these sorts of things that undermine the sustainability of it. There'll be little local, and sometimes little local incentives to maintain the project. Um, and I think, I think that's really, really important. Um, you know, nature-based solutions that take into account, you know, local diverse values and beliefs, and especially nature-based solutions that in the implementation of really build social capital, build social bonds, are much more likely to be maintained over the long term. Is that this encourages stewardship and with better stewardship nature's more likely to uh, be able to continue providing all these benefits for people
0: and So, so you you, uh, really, yeah i'm sorry good.
1: no so you are, there are examples all over the world where there's been you know top-down uh, imposition of an intervention you know a forestry intervention for example where people have lost their land and or or, or it has maybe the establishment of a protected area which hasn't taken all these things into account um, and it causes a lot of conflict locally and then conservation action becomes, the, you know, the enemy of the, of the is then perceived to be the enemy of the poor, whereas actually, obviously, the opposite is true. And so we really have to respect, um, respect that. And, and I think that's where we always emphasise that, you know, nature based solutions, well, for it to be a solution, it has to be has to respect that community knowledge and those land rights. Um, because if it doesn't, it won't. It won't. It won't be sustained.
0: What sounds like in a worst-case scenario, if the land is used in a way uh, that the people who are from that area cannot use anymore, they lose their livelihoods. That's the worst-case outcome, right?
1: Absolutely. Uh, They'll lose their livelihoods and they'll lose their their motivations to protect the forest and to not hunt. You know, there's all these things. There's a lot of local pressures which arise through poverty. And so, you know, there's a way of of delivering and implementing and financing nature-based solutions which can deliver, you know, lots of livelihood and economic benefits for the local communities, can improve their own um you know trajectories through life for their own prospects and so uh, the really successful nature-based solutions are often quite small scale ones ones that have been designed and implemented by by those local communities those are the ones that sustain those are also the ones that sort of naturally you know scale out by word of mouth you know if something's working in this community and people are benefiting because their fisheries are healthier because they've got a more regular more secure supply of honey whatever it is that they use from the forest then others will just do it even without you know external funding coming in it'll just be the best thing to do for the environment because they'll be healthier and happier as a result of it.
0: You've mentioned biodiversity uh, a number of times in our conversation um, and you've emphasized that nature-based solutions must protect biodiversity. And my understanding is that's not just biodiversity for its own sake. It's that preserving biodiversity is actually crucial to the very success of climate change mitigation and adaptation efforts. Can you tell me a bit more why biodiversity is such a, a priority?
1: Well, I think it's yeah a very good question and a very important one. Um, I mean biodiversity is the diversity of life right from the level of the gene through to the level of the ecosystem. There's a lot of confusion about that, you know, biodiversity is not wildlife. It's not an elephant or a mahogany tree. It's not something like that. It it is that which, you know, secures the flow of all that we value in nature. Um so, that diversity of genes, diversity of species, and all the interactions between them stabilizes and ensures the productivity of that ecosystem. So, if you start taking away or eroding biodiversity, that ecosystem starts to function less efficiently and starts to, you know, it will, it, so for example, intact forests is much, much better, much more stable. Uh, in its sequestration and storage of carbon. As soon as you start taking out some of the trees, as soon as you start losing some of the, the large-bodied birds and mammals that are responsible for the dispersal of seeds, for example, then that forest is much less able to do its job even just you know in terms of carbon storage. You start messing around with natural ecosystem, they're much, much less able to do all these things that we need them to do, all these things that underpin the value of nature as our basically as our life support system. And the reason is that is the more sort of diversity you have, or the closer an ecosystem is to having its sort of natural, naturally evolved levels of diversity, the more resilient it is to change. And the one thing we know about the future is that much more change is coming. And so we need to have a diverse portfolio of species because it, the more species you have, um, the more or the more intact that ecosystem is, the more likely it is that at least subsets of the community of species will be able to still function, produce biomass, do the pollination, all the other things that, that nature does, um, even in a, during an extreme drought or during an extreme flood, there'll always be something there. So there's a lot of experimental evidence to support this notion that the, the more diverse or the more intact an ecosystem is, the more able it is to to deal with change, the more able it is to deal with, you know, pests and pathogens and disease. Um, so it's just much more resilient much much as an investment portfolio is more resilient if it is diverse it's the same it's the same logic and the scientific evidence is very much there to support that now in a range of ecosystems so if you if you ignore the biodiversity question you are unlikely to have a stable Um, mitigation or adaptation solution deliverable by your ecosystem. And so that's what sometimes people overlook that. They think, well, we'll plant some trees. They don't think about the diversity of trees. They don't think about the resilience of that. And that, that forest might deliver in terms of carbon for the short term. But in a rapidly changing world with more floods and fires and droughts and more diseases it's very unlikely to be able to do that for the long term so those thinking about investing in nature-based solutions are really wise to think about investing in biodiverse nature-based solutions otherwise they won't get the return on their investment
0: bioenergy with carbon capture and storage has gotten quite a lot of attention for its potential to to, uh, remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere But it also requires these large, potentially large, monoculture plantations to grow the energy crops. Is bioenergy with carbon capture storage, or simply called BECS, is it compatible with biodiversity as you've been talking about?
1: No. BECS requires an enormous amount of land, and that will trade off not just with protecting biodiversity that we need for resilience, our own resilience, but also with food production. Um, there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done uh, uh, on the Bex approach in order to understand how it could go to scale and not cause more harm than good. So it's at a very, you know, it really isn't, Bex is not ready to go to scale and may never well, and may, may never may, may never be scalable because it is, is, it does require, as you say, a, a practise that will compromise um, other goals, biodiversity and food goals, but also it will, you know, I mean, you need enormous amounts of, it drains the soil, it depletes the soil communities, and you need a lot of application of fertilizers and that, and that results in pollution and other social and, and ecological impacts. So, yeah, we're not there with Bex yet at all and we may never be. Um, in its current format, its current conceptualization could do more harm than good.
0: You know everything that you've been talking about really brings to mind uh, when we're looking at nature-based solutions how complex they are you have so many considerations you've got the projects themselves you've got biodiversity concerns you've got uh community concerns so much is into this It's, it's it's clearly a it's gonna require at scale complex systems thinking to put these solutions to work at scale and i guess that that brings up the question of If this is so complex, if it's multidisciplinary, who's going to design and oversee these programs or these systems at scale? Is this going to fall to government? Is it going to fall to industry? Can you talk about that?
1: I think it's all about public-private partnerships. It's all about big interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary working, uh, ways of working. So a real change in the way Um, We work. I mean, and that's, you know, we talk about systemic change around diet and energy use, but we also need a systemic change in how we all work together. On the science side, you know, we can't deliver, we even investigate these solutions without, you know, bringing in social scientists, working with natural scientists, working with physical scientists. We no longer can work in our silos, in our disciplines. And similarly, you know, as you point out, nature-based solutions involve landscape, scale decision making so you need it from a government point of view you need different ministries working together you know you need the the ministry of agriculture working with forestry working with water working with finance and 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 so you know there, there's a real need for completely new ways of more yeah cross cross uh, sectoral multidisciplinary ways of working and not just you know governments working on their own but governments working with businesses so we see in landscapes in the uk we see you know businesses working with um, local governments to implement nature-based solutions in the landscapes so this is happening all over the place it, It's become obvious that this is the only way to deliver some of these solutions so it is actually happening but it is perhaps one of the biggest challenges to scaling up nature-based solutions um, is that need for collaboration across all these different entities that are used to working in silos, but it's become very apparent that we can no longer do that. In fact, the broader narrative around climate change you know, has shifted in this regard. You know, For decades, the climate change, biodiversity and development communities were all working in isolation from one another. What we've seen in the last couple of years is them pulling together more, them at least acknowledging that they all need to work together and to set targets that don't contradict one another, but actually harmonize
0: Now, you've uh, emphasized that nature-based solutions can drive significant uh, carbon dioxide reductions if we act quickly, uh, and much less so if we don't. Can you tell us about the time constraints uh, related to nature-based solutions?
1: Well, well, nature-based solutions are scalable right now. Whereas a lot of the technology that we undoubtedly need is not yet ready, we need to be investing a lot more research into development into those technological solutions around carbon dioxide removal, around carbon capture and storage. We're going to need all the solutions, (laughs) you know, it's not that those as i said at the beginning they they work together both on the mitigation and the adaptation side but a lot of the tech isn't there yet it's not scalable bex isn't scalable it's a biological solution it's not a nature based solution but that's not scalable and so we need to we need <laughs> we need to do everything but the thing about nature based solutions is that we can do them now but we also you know when it comes to restoring landscapes that have been very heavily degraded Um, You know, we need to start the process of regenerating our landscapes now because it obviously is going to take some time for those ecosystems to grow back, you know, to regain their communities, to reassemble. Now, in some landscapes, that's a question, you know, it's often just a question of leaving it and nature will do its thing. But in many landscapes, um, they've been degraded so badly through repeated fires, through overuse of pesticides and other, you know, fertilizers and other chemicals. So they're, they're, those landscapes are in really bad shape, which is, means that we're going to have to be quite a lot of human intervention in the landscape to get them going, to build up the fertility, to to bring in native, to bring in vegetation, and then you've got the extra complexity that in a warming world, in some landscapes, we're not sure necessarily which is the right combination of species we're seeing rain shifts of many species of of plants and animals under climate change and it might be for example in the UK that some landscape restoration programs are going to need to think about using more mediterranean species because native species are no longer able to cope with the climatic conditions that we now have here as a result of climate change there's a lot of there's a lot of research that's needed even on the I you know even on the nature based solutions side um, people want to implement now but often they overlook the fact that we, we're not quite sure how best to implement, but we just know that we need to be investing in that research and doing as much implementation as we can now. The other thing about nature-based solutions is that there is a, a limit to how much of a climate solution they provide. I said it was about a third of a degree off peak warming, but that's up until the end of the century. You know, When all the land that could be covered in an ethical and sustainable way is covered with with nature in various forms um, that's that we can't go we can't increase the size of the planet we can't increase the land surface area um, i mean there is yeah so 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 that's the, there is a limit so by the end of the century we need a lot of hardcore technology in place to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and to figure out ways of storing it for the long term um, so there's an enormous amount of work that's needed there, but 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 we need to do a lot now and nature can really help us. So we need to invest in nature now. And of course, in investing in nature, we you know now will also secure all sorts of other very important ecosystem services, will help us deal with the impacts of climate change, will support livelihoods, can get the economies going in many countries because of the job creation potential that they have.
0: You know, there's one other point that really stood out um, in some of the reading I was doing uh, prior to our conversation, and that is that if the climate warms too much, some of these solutions won't be viable at all, or they'll be much less viable. Potentially, carbon dioxide sinks become sources of carbon dioxide. Yeah. T- tell, tell me a little bit more about that if you would.
1: Absolutely. I mean, this is this is really important, and it goes back to my comment earlier, is that, you know, you can't get your 27% of a climate solution afforded by nature unless you also get your 73% from, from keeping fossil fuels in the ground, because if we don't keep those fossil fuels in the ground, if we don't bend the curve on, em- on emissions very, very quickly climate warming and the effects of climate warming, so the increased intensity and frequency of fire, for example, will damage the biosphere. So it will undermine the capacity of the biosphere of the forests, of our grasslands, of our coastal ecosystems to be a net sink for carbon dioxide. So obviously as forests and as the other ecosystems grow as your grass and your wetlands your kelp forests as they all grow they are and, and as they are creating biomass so they're creating structures they are you know absorbing more carbon dioxide through re- photosynthesis than they are emitting it through respiration we have to remember that plants breathe like we do they respire so they also emit carbon dioxide and so you get to a point in an ecosystem where you know it's at equilibrium and so that's a factor as well. So when, once, once some ecosystems have reached their, their equilibrium, they will be, you know, net zero, so to speak. But the bigger problem is that, yeah, fires and floods and droughts and these types of activities combined with all the things that we're doing to the biosphere, habitat fragmentation, pollution, disease, invasive species, all of these things act together it's a perfect storm that's very bad for biosphere and it erodes its capacity to deliver ecosystem services and it can shift the balance between being a net sink to a net source of carbon dioxide because what we want to avoid at all cost is releasing so much carbon in the biosphere um, we need to ensure that that stays locked in there we need to protect the peatlands. we need to manage the the tundra so that the permafrost doesn't melt so quickly and that it speaks to all sorts of complex uh, interventions around herbivores and so on we probably don't want to go into that in this conversation but there's like a lot we need to be getting on doing in terms of sustainably managing our ecosystems to try and you know a, a, avoid the biosphere actually exacerbating the problem and that's all about how we relate how, how we use the ecosystem and it's also a, a fundamentally about how quickly we can get to zero emissions
0: Okay, so then given the need to act quickly, what types of nature-based solutions are most most cost-effective and might merit prioritized attention and investment right off the bat?
1: Well, instead of talking about planting more trees, what we need to do is protect our intact intact ecosystems. So we need to protect our peatland, all that peatland in the Congo, all the peatland in the U.K. We need to, you know there is so many so much important work as well as obviously old growth tropical forest is incredibly important not just for carbon but also for biodiversity and livelihoods you know protect what we've got is the number one so look at the ecosystems that we've got and stop i mean now still we are still losing horrendous amounts of tropical rainforest every year some of that rainforest ironically is being lost to Tree plantation establishment. Much of it though is being lost to industrial agriculture, um, which then, and a lot of it is being lost as industrial animal agriculture. So that then speaks to all the stuff about systemic change and dietary change and so forth. But protecting what we've got is not a simple thing to do because of the sy- systemic change it necessitates. It's nonetheless an absolutely essential thing to do. So protect what we've got, number one, whatever it is. Tropical forests, peatlands, natural grasslands—you know, kelp forests, seagrass meadows—protect it. The second, the second, next, the most important thing to do is manage our working lands. So, we've got four point one billion hectares of very, very poorly managed, degraded working lands. So, you know, agricultural lands for livestock as well as crops. A lot of that is very, very poorly managed, and you know, generates a lot of greenhouse gas emissions with more sustainable farming practices, some of which, many of which are sort of nature-based solutions, agroforestry and so forth, if we do that, that has a very important, um, you know, has a hugely important impact on greenhouse gas emissions from the land. And then we get to the third category, which is restore what we've lost. Obviously, we can't restore everything because we do need to produce foods. We do need to live in settlements. It's not a question you can't restore everything, but we can certainly restore a lot of the land um uh in certain certain parts of the world there's always trade-offs with agriculture and other needs for land but that's the order protect what we've got manage our working lands much more sustainably and restore what we've lost and then once we've done all that let's talk maybe talk about you know tree planting as a separate activity obviously tree planting native species is part of restoration but actually tree planting in areas where that don't naturally have trees is not Uh, you know, a a priority in terms of a climate solution. I hope that that answers
0: your question. Well, that's so interesting because, again, you know, there's been so much focus recently in this country about planting trees, but you're saying that's, that's a little bit down the road, right? We really need to focus on preserving what we have that that's that's the immediate priority yeah. it sounds
1: like yeah and yeah. some of that is protecting trees because that's mm-hmm. protecting your your you know your old growth forests, existing trees or planting trees where trees belong as part of restoration programs but a forestation so planting trees on grasslands or in areas you know uh, that that don't naturally have trees that isn't really, it's sort of easy and tractable, and people love trees, they can see them, they can plant them, and there's also business returns through commercial forestry, which is a big incentive, but actually, it's very low down the list in terms of nature-based climate priorities.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds like these plantations could change whole ecosystems. Let let me ask you a final question here, if I may. So in the United States, the Biden administration has targeted the protection and restoration of nature-based infrastructure as part of its $2 trillion infrastructure plan. Uh, you're in the UK, uh, <laughs> but uh, are there priorities that come to mind for how the U.S. administration might invest this money if it does indeed end up doing so?
1: Well, no, it's a it's a great question. I mean, um, this is this is extremely welcome, um, and when you actually go to the details of the plan, you know, you find. You find all the stuff you need to see from from the perspective of of you know as a scientist. You know the, the the actual terms are around maximising the resilience of land and water resources. So I'm very happy to see that resilience has been highlighted because, as I say, that's absolutely critical. Um, and the emphasis is to protect communities and environments. So there, in the language, we're not separating from people from nature. But we're actually talking, you know, reflecting the fact that there are communities in the environment, and we need the these sort of this nature-based infrastructure is about protecting both. So, and and the plan, you know, the the, the pledge goes on to say that that um, you know, that your that the protection will inco- uh, um, will be around uh, lands, forests, wetlands, watersheds, coastal and ocean resources. So that's also music to my ears in the sense that there's no talk here of trillions of trees instead that's reflecting that there's a diversity of ecosystems including oceans we've not talked about oceans but oceans and coastal ecosystems incredibly important part of the story and that's reflected in the language of this also reflected in the language is, is that it's around empowering local leaders to shape restoration and resilience projects so that's everything that we've been saying so you know if, I, if if you'd asked me that and I hadn't known what the substance of the text was I would have said well let's think about empowering local communities restoring a wide range of ecosystems. Talking about resilience, you know, connectivity between ecosystems is an extra thing to think about. But you know, it's it is all there. If those that sort of high level pledge, um, you know, can be operationalized um, in, in the way that that language suggests it will, then that could be transformational.
0: Natalie, thanks for talking.
1: Wonderful, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you.
0: Today's guest has been Natalie Seddon of Oxford University's Nature-Based Solutions Initiative. For more energy and climate insights, visit the Climate Center's website where you'll find a wealth of research, news, and information on upcoming virtual events. You can get updates from the Center by signing up for our monthly newsletter on our website or by following us on Twitter. Our handle is at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now and have a great day. Thank you.